Let's take our Bibles together. Uh, turn to, uh, if you would, turn to Hebrews 10. We're going to look at 23 through 25 this morning. And I, I do want to, uh, before we get into uh, reading the Word together and then um, unpacking the Scriptures this morning, um, just want to highlight another announcement that Josh made, but uh, important that you know. If you have not uh, considered as yet joining the church, there are good reasons to do so. Uh, trust that I made the case last Sunday, but uh, we'll go into a little more of that and what that means in our membership seminar, which begins next Sunday. So during the Sunday school hour, nine, uh, beginning at nine o'clock, we will have a membership seminar. It's going to be three weeks long, so three Sundays in a row, and we'd love to see you there. Sign up on the Church Center app. Uh, you can do that, or just let me know, or send an email, uh, but love to see you there. If you have not uh, join the church. If you don't even know why it's important, we'll, we'll talk about that then. Well, let's take our Bibles, like I said, Hebrews uh, chapter 10, beginning at 23. Let's hear the Word of God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Pray with me, please. Father, because this is your living and active word, we know that it works in us in ways that no mere man can accomplish. My task, Father, is simply to be a faithful proclaimer. And uh, we're asking then that you would open us mind and heart to the work of your spirit now. Strengthen our faith. Cause us to change things that need to change. Adjust our attitudes. Father, that we may be faithful representatives of you in this world. Lord, we know um, that a mere man is going to be weak to accomplish any good thing apart from your spirit, so we're asking for help. Help us all now for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're in this series that we began uh, just before the new year, just talking about what, what discipleship looks like. And in our church here, we have what we call the marks of discipleship. Really, we've extracted them from Scripture. But uh, you'll find at the Welcome Center these uh, brochures, a single card. I like to keep mine in my Bible. It just reminds me it's called the Marks of Discipleship. I want to encourage you to pick one up after, after worship today. Well, we're talking about the second mark of discipleship, which is gathering. Well, something happened during the, the pandemic. Something was normalized in both education and business. It would have seemed quite odd, quite strange 30 years ago. The idea that you could sit alone in a room and be connected to others through a computer screen. Certainly, uh, elementary age children, for them, this amounted nothing more than remote non-learning. I think that's been already attested to. And I get it that certain jobs, they do not require a great deal of interaction between work colleagues. I get it. But there's a reason why corporations are calling their people back to physical offices as the expected increase 
in productivity from the remote work did not really materialize. Now, I think we all get this. We all understand something intuitively because who, who among us would be satisfied in hosting your Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner where you had an iPad at each place around your table and each of your loved ones logged in to join your dinner? You would not be satisfied with that. Now, I'm very grateful for this technology. It allows this long distance conversation that includes video. But we all know that it is no way a substitute for being together. Now, I know this morning some are connecting through live stream because uh, you felt unsafe coming here, and I acknowledge that. But it's not for the healthy. It's not for the... It's not for... it. So if you're home just because you wanted to stay in your pajamas, uh, that wasn't for you. Let me just say that. The very definition of the word church. It's assembly, assembly. And so that's more than names on a list. Someone who never gathers with the church is not, not part of the church. Now, now I have to have a, a little carve out because we have some members who are very frail and, and this is for them. Okay. This video stream is for them and they can't get out can't. They don't go anywhere. So I'm, I'm talking to the healthy in general, by and large, if you never intend or you don't see the value in gathering with the church, you're probably not part of it. And that definition isn't really, really reinforced by our Bible passage. So in our text, we see that the writer of Hebrews exhorts the church to meet together. That's the thing. Meeting together, according to him, is not optional. It's essential. And that's really our second mark of discipleship. So let me say this. A fully devoted follower of Christ will gather for worship and fellowship. So meeting together, physically meeting together, helps us to do three things. We'll see this in the passage. First of all, hold fast. Second, gathering together helps us to stir up. And third, when we gather, it allows us to encourage. So that's my outline this morning. Hold fast, stir up, and encourage. Well, first of all, hold fast. Let's talk about that. When I played hockey as a, as a little kid, I would hear my father, and he was up in the bleachers, and let's just say he was exhorting me loudly, um, two hands on the stick. Two hands on the stick. I would hear it. Now, if you're one-handing a stick in hockey, it's pretty, di dif pretty difficult to take a saucer pass and get it on the tape with one hand. You you need two hands on the stick. If you don't have a firm grip in racket sports on your racket, tennis, pickleball, squash, you could very much miss returning the ball. Or worse, you could injure your opponent. There's nothing more embarrassing than flinging your racket at the other team. When you don't hold on, you're not going to succeed. And defeat is likely, certainly probable, I think the same is true. When you don't have a firm grip on your faith, you're going to wander away. Our passage says, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us, together, we need to hold fast the confession of our hope. So what's that confession of our hope? That's what we talked about last week. 
It's when our focus is on identifying with Christ in his church. We, we talked about that confession. We talked about how Jesus defined the church as this assembly of people who confess. This is from Matthew 16. Assembly of people who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now that phrase, that Christ, the son of the living God, that phrase is pregnant with, with significance. As the Christ, he is the one who fulfills all of the messianic promises from, from the scriptures, from Genesis 3 through Malachi. That's the Christ. As the son of the living God, he, God, he is the God-man. He is truly God. He is truly man. And what this does is it affirms that, that Jesus lived without sin, that he died for our crimes against God, condemnable crimes. Jesus rose from the grave to take that eternal consequence for our sin. So that's the confession of our hope. And it's our hope because in Jesus' resurrection, he did promise an eternal, eternal inheritance with him in our own new resurrection bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, as you see. This is what the passage of Hebrews is referring to, that day drawing near, that day of Christ's return, our resurrection. You see, you can only profess what you truly possess. You can only profess what you truly possess. Now, now someone might say, well, I wouldn't let go of that. I, I wouldn't lose that. Regardless of meeting together, I wouldn't lose that. I would say, don't fool yourself. We believe the things that we rehearse. And you know this, even the smartest people can fall for lies when there are enough other people around them to believe those lies. We see it all the time. And just think of marketing efforts. They, they, they're brilliant at this, right? You say something often enough, and enough women are going to spend $2,000 on a purse. You say something often enough, this is good for you. Well, think of the tobacco companies and their, their extraordinary marketing efforts, right? This is a previous time. We get it now. But in their advertising, they're showing medical doctors saying, this is great, right? So, well, the doctors, they, that's fine. Now, we didn't know as much as we know now. And I think back, my own doc, my own doctor as a kid, that, that he's the one who facilitated my own delivery. I remember when I started to grow up, walk into his office, like, whoa, just like a cloud of smoke. And I went in to see him for a physical. John, you're doing fine. How many, how many cups of coffee are you drinking there, John? Keep it less than 10. You'll be fine, you know? We believed the lie, right? And it was marketing. It wasn't even a conspiracy, and we know our government lies to us as well, right? Of course, they have to, CIA and all that business, right? We have so-called scientists who somehow believe the difference between XX and XY is insignificant. And we watch with horror academics and activists. They somehow embrace the idea that the extermination of the Jews is somehow morally justified. This horrifies us, right? People will believe lies. You, you believe what you rehearse. Over the years, I've grie I grieve as I've watched people pull away from the church. And I hear they don't really regard themselves as Christians anymore. They didn't hold fast. And they leave the faith not long after they leave the church. And I'm not saying it applies to everyone, but it certainly does apply to many. 
And even if they remain somehow Christian, it is extraordinarily nominal. So why does meeting together, why does gathering with the church for worship and fellowship help you hold fast? Why does that happen? Now to this point, to this point, I've assumed that we're talking about the Lord's Day gathering. It certainly includes other aspects, but, but really the Lord's Day is where, where everything begins. Jews would attend the synagogue on the seventh day of the week. We meet on the Lord's Day. That's Saturday. We meet on the Lord's Day. We call it the Lord's Day, but it's really the, the Sunday. After the pattern of the apostles who, who commemorated the resurrection of Jesus. So they set apart the first day. And that was exemplified in their own gatherings. Acts 27, you can see how they did that. Now, like I said, that gathering certain, certainly included more than the Lord's Day. But everything in the life of the church would ultimately flow out of that. And what did they do when they gathered? Well, we see this example in Acts chapter 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The implication here is their devotion is that this is something that they were devoted to together. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. What's that? Well, it's what our New Testament is. All the apostles' teaching eventually became written down, or at least what we needed of it. Matthew to Revelation, that's the apostolic record. And they interpreted the Old Testament ultimately in light of Christ. And you can see an example of this in Acts chapter 2, where Peter, preaching from the Old Testament, preaches Christ. Well, they were devoted to the fellowship. So they preached the word. They were devoted to that. They were devoted to the fellowship. The word there, and you've probably heard this, is one of those Greek New Testament words that gets thrown around by pastors, koinonia, right? That means joint, that's fellowship, joint participation, partnership. And with the church, that partnership is centered around the gospel. It's centered around the, the shared belief that Jesus is the Christ who died for our sins and that he rose again. We're told, Acts 2, 46, day by day, day by day, attending the temple together, they still met there in the temple courts, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with joy and generous hearts. This is the, their pattern they were devoted to fellowship, their partnership in that gospel. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, this is a synecdoche, which is a, it's a figure of speech. A synecdoche is really a, where a part in the phrase describes the whole. So breaking bread, that certainly could represent having a meal together that included bread, meat, and vegetables, whatever. But I take it in this context, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread is a figure of speech meant to convey the fact that they celebrated the Lord's table, which we do routinely here, monthly at least. Breaking the bread of communion, share uh, as they shared it together, representing the fact that they belonged to Christ. Sharing the wine, representing the blood of Christ, spilled out for the forgiveness of the sins, acknowledging that to each other as they ate. So they were devoted to breaking bread. They were devoted to the prayers. And again, not minimizing the importance of personal prayer, but they did this together. And Josh exhorting us to come tomorrow night to pray together. They were devoted to that. They brought their praise. They brought their thanks. They brought their confessions. They brought their petitions together. And this all can be summarized as worship and fellowship, which helps us to hold fast to that gospel confession. So how does that work? How does that work? Well, I would suggest this. 
Worship stokes our affections for the Lord. And when we're talking about worship, we're just talking about the, entire, the entirety of what we do. So not just the singing part of our service. We worship God through reading his word. We worship God through singing the truth of his word. We worship God when we pray together. We worship God when we hear the word of God together. It's when we come together acknowledging that, that we're going to hear from God. We're going to remind ourselves of his word. And what that does, it stokes our faith. It raises our affections. You know what? This happens all the time, right? It happens all the time that when, when you're with others, the thing becomes bigger than it is or becomes as big as it should be. For example, if you go to a very fancy restaurant and, and eat a steak, it's like the best ever by yourself. Yeah, all right, that was nice. But somebody you love there enjoying it as you take each bite, oh, that's so good, right? The thing you enjoy together is magnified. When we enjoy the Lord together in worship, it's magnified. It, it takes on the, the flavor that it ought to have. It is glorious. Our senses get dulled when we're out in the world. And we need them reinvigorated when we come together. You know, I can read something in the Bible. This is, this is what I find. I read my Bible every day, and, and something will convict me and encourage me or remind me of what Christ has done. But, but when someone else shares something that they've read in the Bible and I share something I've read in the Bible, and we talk about that together, somehow it's that much more glorious. And those of you who have been in Bible studies and, and small discipleship groups, you know this. It's glorious. It's like, wow, you know, I read that at home. Suddenly that's bigger. When we worship together, our, our affections get stoked. When we fellowship, when we share together with Christ at the center of our relationship, it helps the gospel stick. Because what fellowship does, it ultimately reminds us of the truths in the word of God. So when, when, when God's people listen to the word of God together, we're affirming together the truth of what we hear. When God's people sing together, and this is why I exhort you, please, please, add your voice. You may not be the best singer. That's okay. Add your voice. What we're doing is we're affirming to one another the truth about what we sing, right? That's why we're very careful about the songs we, we choose. When God's people pray together, like we're, we're going to do it tomorrow night. We're expressing our collective humble dependence upon the Lord. We acknowledge before God there isn't anything that we can do apart from the power of God. So when we come together in prayer, we're saying, God, you've got to do it. We're not cleverly, systematically making disciples of Jesus. It's not the latest technique in a book. We're proclaiming the word of God. The spirit of God takes that word, somehow plants it in the lives of people. Yeah, but we got to be faithful to that. Yeah, but when we pray together, we're saying, God, please do something. Please do what we can't do. When God's people break bread together, when we celebrate the Lord's table in this place. You see somebody with that bread and you see somebody take that wine. Oh, yes, there's a brother or sister who believes like I do. There's a brother or sister who says they're trusting that Jesus died for their sins and rose again.
we gather together so that we can hold fast our confession of hope so that we do not waver. Well, secondly, we gather to stir up, to stir up. Now, um, what do you, when you're, when you're thinking about coming to worship, this, this isn't an out loud question, it's just so it's rhetorical, but you can think in your own minds. What are you thinking about when you're planning to come to worship? Maybe being on time. We've had trouble regulating the temperature in here. I wonder if it's going to be too hot or too cold. Some of you are saying, I mm, hope the pastoral prayer isn't too long. I get it. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking about how you're going to be serving. Will the kids in my class be attentive? Is there enough cream for the coffee? I hope I remember my harmonies. Are my teaching notes ready? Or maybe you're thinking about who you might see. Oh, I think the Smiths are out of town. Or maybe what's for lunch? You think about what's after. Or maybe who you're going to meet for lunch after. Maybe you're thinking about hearing the word. Maybe you're thinking about what it's going to be like singing, fellowshipping. The thousand things that might be on our minds. I get it. And none of these are wrong. But to quote directly from our text of Scripture, here's something to consider. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. To consider is to think about. To attentively fix your eyes or mind upon. So that's more than a passing glance. It's more than an afterthought. It's not an incidental idea. To consider is to be purposeful and planning. Let us consider. To do what? to stir up, to incite, provoke, agitate, not in a negative way, positively, to love and good works. So what this means, if we're considering, if we're planning, if we're thinking about how the, the morning's going to go, we're thinking, love and good works. How can I provoke that? How can I help that? What is beneficial to my brothers and sisters when we gather? Listen, I get it. It's so easy to get annoyed with circumstances and sometimes with other people. It's too cold in here. What's the deal with the perfume? Too much bass in the subs. It's too quiet. Why is that person in my seat? Who spilled the coffee and didn't clean it up? Huh? It's on my mind. Sorry. I don't think that dress is appropriate. Shorts in this weather? Come on. Right? But to choose to think about, to stir up to loving good works, is to choose to stop thinking about yourself and then rather be other-centered. What can I say? What can I do for this person's eternal good? And the way, we, the way in which we do that, the way in which we stir up others to love and good works is by loving and serving others. Somehow serving and loving others stirs up others to love and serve others. It's a kind of a contagion. You see someone doing something sacrificial for someone else, you go, that's just so like Jesus. I want to be like that too. And you know what? This is not only has the benefit for the one being served, but it glorifies God. The Bible tells us that. He is pleased when you serve others. Jesus said this, 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, that's not just inside the church, but it certainly doesn't exclude it, does it? Further, your love-motivated service, your good works glorify God because it shows, it shows the watching world that we actually belong to Christ. Perhaps you recall this command that Jesus gave to his disciples. And of course, this includes you and me. John 13, 34, he said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now, just to be clear, when Jesus says love, he's not just saying feel good. Because he demonstrated his own love for them by serving them, by washing their feet. So this was exemplified by Jesus. Of course, he went to the cross for us. But he says this, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Well, there's the command. It's like, well, that, that's good motivation. But, oh, there's, there's still more here. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So like I said, love for one another is not just what we feel, but proven in the things we do. And that shows all people that we're Jesus' disciples. Think of the power of that. When we love one another, when we serve one another sacrificially, when we stir up one another to love good works, it puts on display for the, for the watching world or any unbelievers who happen to walk into the room saying, this is what it looks like to be the people of God. And if they're the people of God, then I guess this Jesus must be real. Now, I want to be clear about something. You can't muster this from within. You cannot will yourself to love and serve others unless you have experienced yourself the love of Christ. Unless you yourself know the forgiveness of sins. Unless you yourself know the mercy and the grace of God and the sweetness of his promises confirmed in you by the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. This is what Romans 5.5 tells us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it's supernatural. We have to acknowledge that. But, but if you do know the truth, if you abide in Christ through the word of God, what that does, it changes your affections. And in, you can indeed love and serve others. See, it all kind of works together, doesn't it? Our, our love for God gets stoked when we're worshiping. And if your love for God increases, then your love for one another will increase. It's just a win-win no matter how you look at it. John says this in his epistle. We read part of this together. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. True fellowship. See the condition there? Like if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, that actually is a glue, cause us to stick together, which then has the positive effect. Now, I gotta say this, church family, honestly, I see this in you every week. So I'm not speaking to you like, well, you gotta get this together. No, I, I see this here. But I think the reminder is absolutely valuable. Let's never become complacent. By God's grace, we must seek to continue 
and to increase in our desire to stir up one another to love and good works. And I see that love that is revealed in patient and forgiving spirit when someone wrongs you. I see that love revealed in your hospitality for our, for our guests, people who are here for the first time, that you're grateful to see them, seeking to minister to them. I see that love revealed in attitude that seeks to serve the needs of others in so many different ways. And it's that mindset, that mindset that embraces our responsibility before the Lord, empowered, of course, by his grace to do everything that we can, whether that person, that new person, whether that person does not yet know Christ or whether that person is a mature believer, loving and serving to ultimately lead him or her to full devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we gather to stir up. Finally, we gather to encourage. We gather to encourage. Now, it's, uh, it's great. It's that great feeling you have. Young men feel this in particular, maybe young women too, but when you feel that, that youth and you feel kind of strong and invincible, and I'm always impressed by professional athletes and they compete at the top of their game. But you know, it happens, right? Something happens, a concussion, broken bones, broken jaw, saw this last week. Suddenly that one that was invincible is weak and they're in need of help from others. And listen, if it's like that for elite athletes, no one is exempt, right? And this is very true spiritually as well. And in a church like this, in fact, in any other church, there are those among us who have been wounded. There are those among us who are weak. We have to acknowledge that. Now, when we gather in this place, we share a confession of who Christ is. We share that confession of what he's done for us. And we have that common hope in his return. But we all know this when we, when we leave this building. There's so much that is opposed to the message that we hear together. And you're going to feel like you're swimming upstream. And you're going to feel like you're, you're going against the grain. That's opposition from the world. But listen, the threats to our spiritual well-being are not just external to us. We still have that daily battle within us against the temptation to feed our flesh, right? To exalt ourselves, to be selfish. And if we should give in to these temptations, that just multiplies our grief and deepens the scars. See, another reason that we gather together, verse 25, encouraging one another. That verb, to encourage, parakaleo, that's in the Greek, just means to call to one side. Like, come, let's, let's walk together. To exhort, comfort, strengthen, instruct, beg, entreat, admonish, parakaleo. Now, the reason I'm telling it to you in that in the Greek, is because in noun form, it's how Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit. The helper. Parakletos. Noun. John 14, 6. So what the Holy Spirit does within and for each of us, and I'm not equating this, okay? But just see the value of this ministry. What the Holy Spirit does within us and for each of us 
in a sense, he calls us to do for one another, to be a helper, to come alongside, to encourage, to strengthen, to admonish. Now, there would be absolutely no reason for this exhortation in the scripture unless the possibility existed, the reality existed, that people in the church would be spiritually weak and discouraged. It happens. Now, right now, where you're sitting, you might feel spiritually strong. You're enjoying the fellowship of of God's people. You're reading your Bible. You're resisting temptation. You're growing in your obedience to the word of God. Praise God. But don't let your pride deceive you into thinking that you do this on your own. Because right now in this room, there are brothers and sisters who feel so very weak. They're in a place that they had never imagined they'd be. They're in a state that they could not have thought. They're stumbling. Maybe they're gripped by some kind of addiction. Maybe they're overwhelmed with grief, perhaps stuck in a sinful pattern, maybe even on the verge of destroying the most important relationships in their lives, feeling helpless, hopeless, They need you. They need you. They need you not to shame them, but to encourage them. And hear me on this. Someday you will need others. Now, this passage of Scripture, it's often read at weddings, but the word in in Ecclesiastes 4, it's not just about marriage, should be particularly exemplified in the church. Listen to what the sage says. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him, lift him up. Woe. The Hebrew is there, oi. Maybe you've heard of the Yiddish, oi vey. Right? It's mean, oh, how sad. How sad to him who is alone. Woe to those who do not gather with the church. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So yeah, some are wandering and are going to need to be admonished, lovingly admonished. Hey, don't go there. It's not my notes, but... My previous church this is years ago. I think enough time has passed. In, in my care group, we had, we had a guy who went on a mission trip, and a team of men and women. Well, he came back, and he, he had this emotional relationship with this woman, and, and things were going bad really fast. And as a subset of our church, our little small group, our care group got together, and we brought the full weight of admonishment on this guy. We hounded him. We said, don't. Don't you. Don't you. Don't leave your marriage. Don't destroy your family. Don't do this. It took weeks. Nothing ever transpired between the two. And by God's grace, and I just saw this on Facebook a few weeks ago, he was celebrating his wife of 40 years. That was admonishing. And it was effective. And that's our job. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Now, some are in sin and definitely need to be rebuked. 
James in his epistle writes this, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know. But whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's a glorious thing. It's an absolutely glorious thing. We're all weak at times. We need one another. There isn't an egregious sin that someone hasn't committed that we're all not capable of in some respects. That's why we're here to encourage one another. All need that patient encouragement. And you can't do it alone. And you can't encourage unless you make it a priority to be with one another. Now you're here. I know you get that. But as we think about what it means to make disciples, do not be satisfied with somebody's life of discipleship who says, I believe in Jesus. Maybe even got baptized. But wanders away from the church. That's a worry. This, to me, is the best day of the week. To me, it's the most important day of the week. I don't want to give it up. You shouldn't give it up. Not because it's a law. Not because there's some punishment for not gathering. But because it's for your good. And it's for the good of one another. We gather so that through worship and fellowship, we can hold fast to the confession of our hope and not waver. We gather so that we can stir up, agitate one another to love and good works. We gather because we cannot live lives of faithful discipleship in isolation. We need the encouragement of other disciples of Jesus. And we do this all the more, as it says in our passage, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now someday, someday you're going to go to your grave. Or maybe you'll be alive when Christ returns and when he does, you will know, you will know at that moment that this, as the Apostle Paul calls this momentary affliction, at that moment you will know that that has prepared you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison so we can hold faithful to that day. So true disciples, do not neglect. Do not neglect the gathering. As we lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. We must prioritize the Lord's Day gathering ourselves and teach others to do the same. It is a mark of discipleship. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for a church family that loves to be together. I don't want to lose it, and I thank you for your word that reminds us of it. But Lord, there are people who profess faith in Jesus all over that think little of gathering and God, I know that they're in a dangerous place. Um, Father, would you strengthen our resolve to keep this day set apart, to remind us that uh, we benefit greatly, that our witness in the world is strengthened when we gather together, that our opportunity to build each other up is strengthened when we gather together. And ultimately, it is for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ who saved us, set apart, set us apart for you by his sacrifice at the cross. Keep us feel, uh, faithful to that day as we see it drawing near. For the glory of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.